and it hasn't gotten out widely into the churches yet, and that is that the Psalms is not just an anthology of individual poems. It's actually arranged for a purpose. And I want to take just a section of this, but the, the uh, portion that I want to spend time with is Psalm 91. So turn to Psalm 91, if you will. In Psalm 91, I have a, uh, one of those psalms that you love to read. It's just delightful. And in fact, it's been important in my life when I was uh, <clears throat> invited by a committee of my fellow citizens to join the United States Army. Amen? You know this language at all? Yeah. So when I, I was, I won the lottery, folks. You don't believe that, but I did. I won the national lottery, won a three-year, all-expense-paid tour of some of the finest Army posts in the United States. Glory. Uh, all, all expenses. Man, clothes, food, lodging, everything. <laughs> yes. But it was during the Vietnam War. And uh, you don't know quite when you're invited into the military during the Vietnam War, quite where you're going to end up. As it turned out, I fought the Battle of Fort Hood. <laughs> okay. I, you got to laugh. I, I don't... See... See, at school, I can tell the people, if you don't laugh, you don't pass. So here I can't give you a grade, but I, I, want, you to, I want you to laugh at least. I, you don't have to believe the joke is funny. You just have to know I think it is. So, uh, um, Psalm 91, though, was a psalm that Mother prayed over for me for um, weeks and months. Because from 1968 or so, I knew I was going into the service. Um, when I graduated, that was, that was a foregone conclusion. My draft number was low enough that I was going to go. And, the, and Mother prayed this psalm over and over again for me and, and continued to pray uh, through the years at seminary and uh, the years in Memphis she went to be with the Lord seven years ago, but um, she prayed this psalm pretty much for me, and she had in her Bible uh, Jim's psalm, <laughs> Psalm 91. Let me read it with you quickly, and then we'll say a few, make a few comments about it, but the larger issue is going to take us into more than just Psalm 91. Let's look at it. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Four, and from verse 3 down to verse 13 is all that the Lord's sheltering uh, ministry to us carries out. So watch it, verses 3 to 13. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or by the arrow that flies by day, of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side. 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked, for you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you. Now you know this passage quite well, don't you? He will give his angels charge concerning you to charge you in all your ways. They will bear, your, bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Finally, in verses 14 to 16, there is God speaking and telling what he, specifically what he plans to do for people who seek their refuge in the Lord. So verse 14 because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. 
I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. And that's what mother prayed for me all those years. (laughs) Um, It's it's great to have a praying mother. Amen? Um, But you know, this psalm is difficult. It's a great psalm. I love reading it, don't you? Doesn't this sound awfully encouraging? But every one of you knows exceptions to this psalm. My mother, who put her, who, who, who verse one would be true about, she dwelled in the shelter of the Most High, died of cancer, suffered with cancer for 15 years. My stepfather asked the oncologist when she passed away, he said, how long do people with this cancer usually live? The oncologist said, I've never heard of anybody living longer than four years. She had it for 15. (laughs) But you've read the Bible too. And you know that there were godly people who died under persecution. You've read Hebrews 11. Yes? That that passage that begins about verse 32 of Hebrews 11. um, They conquered kingdoms. They turned back armies. You know that passage. But in the middle, there are the but others. I have a pastor friend who said, if I ever wrote a book, it would be on Hebrews 11, and the title would be But Others. But others were, were persecuted. They were beaten. They were sawn in two. They were, are you with me? Yeah, you know the passage? Yes? You know, perhaps, if you've read your Bible closely enough, where Jeremiah died. Do you know where Jeremiah died? He died in Egypt. Was, do you think Jeremiah was a righteous man or a wicked man? Righteous? You think so? According to Deuteronomy 28, when Israel violates the covenant, they will go back. God will send them back to Egypt because they have broken the covenant with their God. Jeremiah died in Egypt. He died under the curse of God. A righteous man who died under... What, what am I to do with Psalm 92, 91? I've been calling it 92 all week. 91. What are we to do with Psalm 91 when I have all these exceptions to it? What am I to make of this? Well, that's where I need to turn to some research that began, uh, first hit the scholarly world in 1979 with the publication of a book whose name doesn't matter. The author was named Gerald Wilson. Since the publication of that book, every commentary on Psalms is different. He has, he has had that kind of impact, and, and praise God, he was a Bible-believing Christian. That's <laughs> not always true in Old Testament scholars, but he was. And what he did was he said, look, they didn't just take all the psalms and dump them into a hat and pull them out at random and put them in order. Does that make sense to you? There's a reason for the order of the psalms, and we need to find it out. He thought he had found it. I think he, he discovered something very important, but it's not enough. There more needs to be said. If you wanted to see his work, there's a really nice commentary. He, he died before he finished his work on Psalms. So there's a commentary out on Psalms 1 to 73, and it's adapted just for people in church. It's called the NIV Application Commentary Series, and it's, uh, his volume on Psalms is awfully good, and it's worth reading. Uh, so I'd commend that to you if you're looking for some help in understanding the Psalms. Lots of application in the, in the uh, commentary itself. So there's more than just discussing the Psalms, but he explains what he's trying to do with Psalms. Um, See, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things most people don't know. (laughs) And one of the things I know is that Psalm 91 comes after Psalm 90. Glory. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, She laughed. There is life in this room. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, And Psalm 90 comes after Psalm 89. 
And Psalm 89 comes after Psalm 88. And you will say, well, so what? Well, let's go back to Psalm 88, just a minute. Most of what I'm going to be saying in the rest of our time together is going to be derived from these observations. It's important that you see this. Instead of just reading a psalm and letting that be it, I need to read it with the context. We had a very famous, internationally famous speaker in chapel several years ago at the seminary. And um, he said, I tell my students, if you wake up in the middle of class, realizing as you're waking up that I'm asking you a question, but you didn't hear the question, if you'll answer context, you'll be right 75% of the time. (laughs) Uh, All meaning comes from context. And Psalm 91 is not less contextually uh, centered than any other passage in the Bible. So look at Psalm 88. It's an unusual psalm in that it's one of only two psalms in the book that don't, ha- that don't, that don't have any praise. Uh, the, the Hebrew name for the book of psalms is praises. But there are two psalms that don't have any praise. Psalm uh, 88 is one of them. And it's a lament psalm. The psalmist is in trouble and he's in deep trouble. I just want to read a few lines from it. Um, Verse 3, my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me, and you have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? And that's all I want to read from this psalm. Why read that? Because this is a man who has a right relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, have you ever noticed that you get most angry at the people you care about most? Have you ever noticed that? Move your heads. Why is that? Because you trust them. And they trust you. Are you with me here? You show more anger to people that you love most. That's strange. But it's a fact of life. And God, when God has people who trust him, they can pour out their anguish to him. Even their anger. You've read Job. Yes? And Job pours out his anger to the Lord. And you know what God says in Job 42? He says to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, You have not spoken what what is right concerning me as my servant Job has. Because everything Job said about what God had done is what God in fact had done. So he spoke the truth. And God's shoulders are huge. He can take all of our anger and he understands it. What do you do with an infant who is so hungry or so uncomfortable and just screams in anger? You change the diaper. Yes? You don't get mad at the child, do you? Dumb kid. When are you going to learn to use the bathroom? Amen? Is that what you do? Neither does God. He understands. Folks, Psalm, rather Isaiah, what is it, 63, 9, says, in all, and he's talking about Israel, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence guided them. Folks, when he brings trouble, a pastor friend of mine said years ago, 
lady was, was in church and she was just really pouring out a lot of griping and complaining about things that were going on in her life. And he said, now, sister, you ought not to carry on so. And she said, well, pastor, when God sends me tribulation, he expects me to tribulate, doesn't he? And as a matter of fact, he does. He knows exactly what it feels like. Brothers and sisters, he sacrificed his son for us. He knows our pain. He knows what it costs us. He's doing it for our good, but he knows what it costs us. And when you are in anguish before him and you pour out your pain before him, he understands. But you see, Psalm 88 comes before Psalm 89. Why is that important? What's the 75% correct answer? Context. So Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is one of those psalms that we really love because we never read it all. We only start, we only read the beginning of it. Uh, There's an old song we used to sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever I will sing. So what's the attitude? What's the atmosphere of that psalm? Joy. This is not a joyful psalm. It's a psalm about God's promises to David. In Psalm 89, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be up. Uh, will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness I have made a covenant with my chosen I have sworn to David my servant I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations that's just the beginning of the psalm turn to verse um, uh, 38 this is also a lament psalm like Psalm 88 But a great portion of it is praise. Most psalms have praise in them. Um, When I get to verse 38, though, you turn to undermine everything he said in the previous 37 verses. Look at verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have made full, uh, you've been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and have cast his throne to the ground. You've shortened the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. What happened to the faithfulness of God? I thought God was faithful and his word stands forever. And now what he had promised to David would always be true is no longer true. Where is is the king on David's throne in Jerusalem today? What's his address in Jerusalem? What building does he sit in? And of course, our answer, well, it's Jesus. Amen? Amen? Yeah. There's a joke that went around Dallas Seminary back in, in my student days. Um, this Sunday school teacher was talking to the children, and he always patronized children, right? So, now, children... What's gray and, and furry and gathers nuts for the winter? And the kids all bow, uh, do, do, drop their heads because if you don't make eye contact with the teacher, you don't have to answer. I, I, I learned a lot about surviving in school. I, I was in school from 1953 to 1984. Ah, yikes. <laughs> uh, so the teacher said, no, come on, children. What's gray and furry and gathers nuts for a winter? Finally, one little kid eased a hand up. The teacher said, good, good. What, what is it? And the kid says, well... Sounds like a gray squirrel, but the answer is probably Jesus. <laughs> in, in a given social situation, when a question is asked, there is only a certain range of answers that are possible, that are acceptable in that setting. So in Sunday school, the answer has got to be Jesus. Whatever the question is, got to be Jesus. Well, Jesus is not sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem today. There is no building where he is seated. So... 
Where is the promise of God? And you will say, well, Jesus is raised from the dead. Yes, but the psalmist doesn't know that. Right? What good is it to have the promises of Psalm 91 if God doesn't keep his promises to David? Go to Psalm 90. In Psalm 90, we're just carrying on this same problem. Where are you, God? When are you going to answer When will you come and bring us salvation? When will you work? In Psalm 90, the psalmist heads this psalm, a psalm of Moses, the man of God. Yes? Uh, Just a word about that. The headings of the psalms are always written in different, in smaller type, and separated from the text of the psalms. Every Hebrew manuscript that we have, including those from the Dead Sea Scrolls have the headings and they're not separated from the psalm. They're part of it. They're the very first line. So we probably ought to take account of that. Every psalm outside the book of Psalms has a heading to it. Every collection of psalms from outside Israel, and there are collections of psalms from other nations around Israel contemporary with and earlier than the book of Psalms, every one of them has a heading. Why should we assume that these were all added centuries later by people who didn't know what they were talking about? Fundamental assumption of most Old Testament scholarship is that ancient people were stupid. But they weren't stupid. They created the the wheel and the lever and the fulcrum. (laughs) Are you with me here? All the things that modern, modern technology depends upon. Am I making sense to you? They're not stupid. They didn't arrange these psalms and put things in just out of whim. We're the ones who are acting stupidly about them. So here is Moses, and this is Moses' prayer. And Moses starts out, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. What generations is he talking about? Who is the our? You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Who is he talking about? Israel. What all generations is he talking about? There's really only one generation. (laughs) When he's writing this, there's one that's going out and there's one that's coming in. Yes? Are you with me here? So what all generations? Well, it's all the way back to Abraham. Yes? Well, why is that important? Because God made promises to Abraham that he's now fulfilling to the people of Israel. Read Deuteronomy and see. It's not because you were such a great people that God has set his affection on you, but because he loved your fathers and has chosen you, his children. Do you follow this? So God has been our dwelling place all the way back to Abraham. But it goes farther. Verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is not simply a statement about the everlasting character of God. It is that, but it's not simply that. He has been the God who has made promises and kept them since before he created the earth. Does that make sense? And so this everlasting God who is faithful at every step has taken Israel out, of the, out into the wilderness to die. Ah, it's not going to be all Israel. It's only going to be the generation that came out of Egypt. You know the story well, yes? What's going on here? God made promises to David, and he's broken them. We'll clean that up in a minute. He, gave, he made promises to Abraham and to Noah and to Enoch and to Abel and to Adam. But they're not being fulfilled. What good is the promise of God? He goes on. Verse 3, you turn man back into dust. Verse 5, you have swept them away like a flood. What, What imagery is Moses using here? You've swept them away like a flood if he's not talking about Genesis 
You know, you know Moses wrote Genesis, yes? Yeah. So he might know something about floods. He did with mankind what he did with Egypt and its army. He did that centuries before, but he did it. So if the promise, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. Remember this? He shall, yeah, you shall bruise his heel. He will, he will bruise your head. Folks, a bruise on the head can be life-threatening. Yes? It's called, it's called a concussion. Yes? Yes? If the promise is that old, where is it? Why don't you redeem these people? Moses prayed that way at Mount Sinai. Uh, Don't wipe them out. If you must wipe them out, wipe me out of your book. Don't leave me in life. I want them to survive. If it would be possible, I would give my life for these people. As sinful, as rebellious as they are, I would give my life for these people, Moses says. Verse 8, you have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. I want you to notice here, this is probably Moses writing during the 40 years of wandering. Wondering, I've spent 80 years getting ready for this ministry. And at the very point of fulfillment. One year after coming out of Egypt, at the very point of fulfillment, we had to turn back because of the unbelief of the people. Why can't you forgive them and take us in? What I want, what did Moses want most of all in his lifetime? To see the land of promise. And he only got to see it at a distance. Hebrews 11, all these um, saw the promise at a distance and they greeted it but they were sojourners in the earth you remember this Hebrews 11 so verse 13 the petition do return O Lord how long will it be and be sorry for your servants Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. Moses, would you say that Moses is a man who takes refuge in the Lord? What do you think? Yeah. Would you say, look at Psalm 92. Would you say... I'm sorry, 91. I'm off in the woods. I'm back now. I feel much better. So, <laughs> Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Would that be true of Moses? I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Would that be true of Moses? Would it be true, verse 14, because he has loved me. Is that true of Moses? Yes. Um, um, Verse 14 at the end, because he has known my name, would that be true of Moses? Then why isn't the rest of Psalm 91 true about Moses? Moses knew opposition. Well, but you will say, thousands did die at his hand and tens of thousands at his right hand. Yes, because... All the people of his generation died. But think about that, brothers and sisters. Who was it that refused to go into the land of Canaan at Kadesh Barnea? That's a a kind of a trick question, and I intend it to be. Because if you say Israel, I will say you're right, but you need to define it more carefully. The people who refused to go in at at, at, um, uh, Kadesh Barnea was the army. See, because who after, after God said, like Willy Wonka, uh, stop, don't. Remember? They went on in and fought. It wasn't the women and children. 
Yes? How many of the women and children, how many of the young people were part of the remnant that Paul says, God always, indeed God says this to Elijah, I have always kept myself a remnant in Israel. Was there a remnant in the days of Moses? In the days of Kadesh Barnea, was there a remnant? How many of them died before going into the land of Canaan? A lot of them did. They would be people who took refuge in the Lord. Yes? They would be people who knew his name. They would be people who loved him. But they died in the wilderness? What is the point of Psalm 92? Now let me tell you just a short story. It won't take very long. But it's an important story. Psalm 89 makes this story necessary. Psalm 89 is in the setting. I'm not sure when it was written. It's probably fairly soon after the destruction of the, of the, uh, of the temple and uh, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. If you read through the psalm, there are indications that this is very recent in the psalmist's experience. But who are we talking about there? Who is your anointed whose crown has been tossed away, whose throne has been cast into the dust? Well, it's Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim was the last official king of Judah. Um, His uncle, Zedekiah, became king after him, but he was not counted as the official king. Uh, Jehoiakim was, and there are evidences both in the Bible and in non-biblical literature that that's the case. You will perhaps recall, uh, you've surely read through the Bible at some point in your life, at the end of Kings and at the end of Second Chronicles, there's a statement about Jehoiakim having been um, in prison and he's released and he's given a, a seat at the king's table higher than all the other kings uh, around. Do you recall this at all? Yes or no? Yes? Now, read the Bible. It sheds enormous light on the commentaries. So, get busy. Uh, um, Joachim is the last official king. He only reigned three months and ten days, according to one scholar. (laughs) The biblical text says he reigned three months. Jehoiakim, his father, reigned for 11 years, and he was as wicked a man as he could be. And when Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, comes to the throne, this is in 2 Kings 23 and 24, uh, when Jehoiakim came to the throne, we find out who his mother is. This is what you always do in kings with the king who, who comes up, the successor. His mother's name is given, and um, it says about him that he walked in all the ways of his father Jehoiakim. Well, he was a wicked king. So, so what's the big deal about Jehoiakim? Jeremiah says about Jehoiakim, if this man were the signet ring on my hand, I would cast him from me. No descendant of this man will prosper sitting on the throne of David ruling over Israel. Jehoiakim is the anointed whose crown has been thrown away, whose throne has been cast into the dust. Why hasn't God given him victory? Well, for the same reason that he didn't give Israel victory. There was no trust in God. But I wonder about Jehoiakim. I don't know. You see, Chronicles ends the same way that Kings does. And that may be very significant. Do you know anything about King Manasseh? Shake your head, move your head in some direction. This is all right. You can say that if you you know anything. You need to read the Bible, folks. Uh, You're going to meet some of these people in the future. You might want to know something about them. So. (laughs) So King Manasseh was so wicked, he filled Jerusalem with blood, and he was taken off in captivity. This is in Second Chronicles. He was taken off into captivity in Babylon, but there he repented, and the Lord restored him to the land of Judah, back to his throne in Jerusalem. Are you with me here? Yes, no? Yes. Manasseh, this is important because Chronicles is a book written for people after the return from Babylonian captivity. Is there any hope at all for us? We are the children of the people who sinned so much they had to go into captivity. Uh, Is there any hope? We have no king. 
when they first got back, they had no temple. They had a priesthood, but it was partially questionable. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, he gives a, a, an account of the priests, and there were some who claimed to be of the priestly family whose genealogy they couldn't discover, so they were told they couldn't take part in the priestly ministry. But Israel's life is defined by land and temple and priesthood and kingship. And they have nothing but coming back to the land after the Babylonian captivity. Is there hope? There's the story of Manasseh. If Manasseh can find hope in repentance, in seeking refuge in the Lord, then anybody in the post-exilic generation can hope before the Lord. But Jeconiah or Jehoiakim may be the same kind of character. Like Manasseh, he is imprisoned, but released and given great honor among the kings of the earth. Does this make sense? By the way, I've never thought this thought before, so it's probably wrong. So don't write it down if you're taking notes. But it's the first time I've ever thought this thought, that maybe Chronicles is telling us there's another fellow like Manasseh, Jehoiakim, who can be a pattern for you folks who have returned from the land of, of Babylon. There's hope. But what does that do for me with Psalm 92, 91? How does that help me understand? Well, folks, if all meaning comes from context, and that's true, folks, I'm teaching Hebrew now, and the more I teach Hebrew, the more it's clear that meaning comes from context, not from individual words. It's words that are put together in propositions that start making, making sense. The point is that if context is the source of meaning, then context must determine the meaning of Psalm 91. Well, what is this telling us? It's telling us that people who are involved in sin and yet have been given a mission by God, Israel has a mission from God, yes or no? Yes. Uh, People who have a mission from God but are involved in sin, who will turn away from their sin and turn back to the Lord and find their refuge in him, that Expression, look at Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Lord. I will say to the Lord, my, you have refuge. Do you? Refuge? Yes, no? All right. That's an awfully important word. Uh, It's used a little bit later. Um, Look at verse 4. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will seek refuge. That's not just, and and the commentaries miss it fundamentally. It's amazing here. That's not just saying, well, like a mother bird covers her children or chicks. That's there, but that's not all the point. This is actually royal imagery in the ancient Near East. You've heard of the Hittites? Yes? In the ancient Near East, the Hittite king was represented by a sun disk that had wings stretching out. And under the wings, there are always people. They're, they're his subjects who are seeking refuge under the protection, under the, the, um, the rule of the, the Hittite king. And subsequently, that spread throughout the ancient Near East. It went to Babylon, it went to Assyria, it went to Egypt. Everywhere you go from the 15th, 14th century BC on, when you see pictures, you see pictures of a winged sun disk with people underneath. This is the very language that Boaz uses in Ruth chapter 2 to describe Ruth. You have, are are you listening? You have left your native land, your father's house, and the place of your birth. What's that sound like? Does that remind you of anybody else in scripture? Abraham. She's a new, she's, her, her life is modeled on Abraham. You've left these things to seek, and, and your God's, to seek refuge under the wings of the Lord. She has not just made um, a, a safe move to find a place to be protected. She has made the most important choice you can possibly make, citizenship. She sought a new king. She sought a new God. 
She has left everything that gave her life meaning, gave her life shape. She has left everything that defined her to define herself completely differently. And she moves in Ruth, watch it in Ruth sometime when you're reading it. She moves from being the Moabite to being a slave girl, to be a servant girl in the family, to being Ruth. Like all the other Israelites, she is just Ruth. He is not Bethlehem. I'm sorry, he is not Boaz of Bethlehem. He is simply Boaz. Naomi is not Naomi of Elimelech. She's just Naomi. And Ruth is no longer the Moabite or the slave girl or the servant girl in the family. She's just Ruth. She's a member of the family now. Are you with me here? She's taken refuge under the wings of the Lord. So the language of verse 1 in Psalm 91 is this same kind of language. What does it mean to take refuge in the sight of the Lord? Look through the psalm. Make, a, make a, a plan to read through this psalm, maybe this afternoon, and look at it again. You're taking refuge in the Lord when you have a mission from God, and it leads you into every kind of imaginable problem. The overall language of the psalm is focusing upon kingship. That's the amazing thing to me. The, com- the commentaries miss this thing about seeking refuge under the wings of the Lord, and they miss the nature of the language. It's all kingship language. Who, who has to worry about arrows that fly at the daytime? Kings do. Military people do. Yes? Uh, who lays snares and traps for people? Militaries do that. So we're talking about the king. Now there's one more fact, and we'll, we'll draw this to, to a close fairly quickly. There's one more fact. What you saw in the psalm, uh, verse, um, oh, Psalm 91, uh, verses 11 and 12, you know are quoted in the New Testament with reference to Jesus. Yes? By whom? Satan. Oh boy, that's a good source for a quotation. <laughs> It happens to be true because, you see, Jesus is the heir of David who has the right to the throne. He's not like Jehoiakim who has to lose the throne because he's become so wicked. But Jesus is the king who has the right to the throne, and he has the right to every promise in Psalm 91. There's not a promise that's not right for him, but he specifically accepted a ministry in which he became subject to every threat that's in this psalm. Didn't he? He didn't deserve it. The Kadesh Barnea generation deserved it. Yes? The heirs of David deserved it. They didn't have a really good start. Because their father, David, committed adultery and premeditated murder. So none of them really deserved it. The psalm, though, is saying, if you have a mission from God, like David did, like Jehoiakim did, like Israel, Kadesh Barnea did, If you have a mission from God like Jesus did, that mission from God is going to take you into every kind of disaster, every kind of danger, every kind of assault. But because you have set your affection on the Lord, you count them as nothing, as irrelevant. You go on into them. Does that mean you will not die? Well, look at the end of the psalm. Verse 16, Psalm 91, 16. With long life, I will satisfy him. Let him see my salvation. Uh, in, 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 uh, let me just paraphrase that last line. Let him look with joy upon my salvation. David saw God's salvation through many trials. Read Psalm 18. Hezekiah did. Jehoshaphat did. 
First, is it First Chronicles 20? Um, Second Chronicles 20, can be first. Um, over and over again, we see people who saw little glimpses of God's joy and salvation. And we have all the testimony of all the martyrs of all the ages. This is the point of Hebrews 11, isn't it? That you make your choices not based on what makes sense from a mere human point of view. You make your choices based on a God who is everlastingly faithful. And even when you look like you have failed, you're probably on the road to, to success. But it's not a success like the world knows. You see, when the godly die, what was that song that they sang back in the 1960s? Um, has anybody here seen my old friend John? Can you tell me where he's gone? He helped a lot of people, but it said the good die young. Are you with me? What's the use of a life that's short? Verse 16, with long life I will satisfy him. What was Jesus' long life? How many years? Thirty. With long life, I will satisfy him. You see, if the promises in Psalm 91 are about this life only, then the psalm is a lie. Promises have to be about more than this life only. You see, there's no one freer in battle than a man who considers himself already dead. Does that make any sense? There's no one freer in prison than, than the one for whom the true prisoner status is that he's he is a prisoner to the love of God. No one freer. I have a distant relative who's in prison. He didn't know the Lord, got into all kinds of trouble. He's been in, the, in prison for a number of years, but he's come to know the Lord, and he is a, an amazing minister of the grace of God in the prison. Who's freer than that? Then, folks, when you see somebody... Surrounded by enemies, fought on every side, besieged, but one who is making the Lord his refuge. He's still free. Yes? Since our Psalms have taken us all the way back to Genesis, Adam took life, took death out of life. Yes? Jesus took life out of death. Adam left the garden, driven out. You and I, because of Jesus, have immediate access to the garden because of Jesus. He is the one to whom the Father did, in fact, give orders to his angels, they must uphold you lest you dash your foot against a stone. And they did. But his ministry, what he embraced as his mission from God, his goal was to come to earth to die and to rise from the dead. But it was in dying that he took refuge in the Lord. What were his last words before he gave up his spirit. Into your hands I commend my spirit. All the way through, he took refuge in the Lord. He is the pattern for you and me. See, there's hope for us. Are things really hard for you right now? Um, some of you, I, I, I know every place I preach and every time I get a chance to preach, I know one thing about every congregation I go to. I don't know the congregations well, but I always know three things about them. Everybody in the congregation is either in trouble or getting out of trouble or getting into trouble. 
They're not, there are no other kinds of human beings. <laughs> That's all there is. So if I preach about trouble, I'm going to hit you. What you've got to understand is you want the trouble to be because of your mission, not because of your misdeeds. And when your trouble is because of your mission, don't lose heart. Take refuge in the Lord. Look finally now at verses 14 and 15 again. He makes a couple of of statements about the, the person who takes refuge in the Lord. One is, because he has loved me. And the other is, because he has known my name. But he makes, he makes, I think it's five promises to such people. Look at the promises. Verse 14. Therefore, I will deliver him. How? Sometimes by giving you victory temporally in this world, in this day, in, in this life. Sometimes it's by death. But it's always deliverance. I will, I will set him securely on high. We're back to military terminology. In those days, you wanted a fort on a hill. You didn't want it down in a valley because you get the, the, uh, the uh, additional impetus of, of gravity from any falling objects. If you're on a hill, gravity works in your favor when the enemy is assaulting your fortress. Set him on high in trouble. Um, he will call on me and I, I will answer him. I will uh, be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will honor him. I will honor him. He will make you a person of prestige even in the eyes of your enemies. Maybe not today. Maybe not 10 years from now. Maybe not before death. But do you not remember in the book of Revelation I will make those who are persecuting you come before you and bow before you because you have known my name. And folks, there is hope in the midst of trouble. But the hope is not in getting out of the trouble. The hope is taking refuge in the Lord in the midst of the trouble. Let's close with prayer. Father, you know our sorrows. You have planned them for us and prepared them for us to make us like Jesus. Father, you know our pains. You know our fears and anxiety. You even know our anger. But you have purposed through Jesus to give us the same kind of life he had that redemption may work in our lives as it worked in his. Then, Father, turn our hearts to Jesus. Turn our hearts to yourself, trusting you. In spite of the trouble, indeed because of the trouble, finding our real refuge and hope in a God who is everlastingly faithful and will keep his promises to the end. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Yeah.